0: Psalm 74 is where we're going to be today. There's my glasses on my head. It's like, how am I going to do this? I have my glasses and then I felt them. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to feel my glasses on my head. Amazing. Um, Before we get this uh, psalm started, though, let's one last time or one more time go before the Lord and just ask him to open our hearts and our eyes to his word to see what he'll do with it. Let's go before the Lord. (laughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful that you've allowed us this blessing, this time to be able to be here. Lord, we get to be here in this place. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And we ask, Lord, now that you would open our eyes to the things that you would have us hear. Lord, you would break down the hardness of our heart in those areas and begin to mold and shape and Lord, that we would be closer and closer to you and your image. Lord, you would show us the things that you have for us and that we would be prepared and able and ready to receive these things, Lord. That we would bring you honor and glory That we would grow in you and we would leave this place more in love with you, changed, and Lord, just uh, ready to do your will in our lives. We thank you for this time. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Psalm 74, open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we'll get you one. But Psalm 74, from a prophetic perspective... An argument can be made that the book of Psalms can be divided in five separate books. I believe Pastor Tim touched on this, talked about this when he opened the psalm series. Similar parallels can be seen in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. This is why in certain versions of your Bible you'll see book one, book two, and I'll have a series of psalms next to them. Last week, we were in Psalm 62, which is part of Book 2. And Book 2 looks really at the sufferings, generally, generally, at the sufferings of God's people. Living in great tribulation, and they cry out to God. In fact, God, during those Psalms that are part of Book 2, God is mentioned over 200 times in Book 2 alone. Psalm 73 through 89 is considered book three. And that looks generally at the return of Israel as a people. And we see the mercy of God towards his people. It doesn't mean that we also don't see the tribulation. They don't cry out to God. Of course they do. But we see more of a mercy and a turning, the people turning. And so Psalm 74 obviously is part of book three, and that's where we're going to be. Psalm 74 tells us that it's a psalm for a plea for relief from the oppressors. Some say it's a contemplation or a mass skill of Asaph. Depends on the version of the Bible that you have. This contemplative psalm may also say didactic or skillful psalm, a psalm of instruction. Depends on where you're doing your research and what version you have. But in context, this means that this is a plea for a, or a prayer from the one who is speaking. And this is one who is speaking with great and having great sorrow. Great sorrow of what we'll actually cover in the psalm itself. Before we get there, who is Asaph? He's mentioned in the very beginning. And as with many things having to do with the details in the Bible, there is debate, there's always debate, why can't we agree, there's always debate as to which Asaph this is referring, Well, there's evidence to suggest that other people, in maybe his lineage, maybe other people in his role, but Asaph, as we know, was a great singer and songwriter of King David, and Solomon, King Solomon, in their era. He was also the king's conductor and his choir master of the temple. In way of some reference for this, check out 1 Chronicles 16, verse 7, and 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 30. We'll read about Asaph. And when we look at Asaph and you look at the Psalms, he's actually the conductor of a number of them. And as we'll read, he was brokenhearted, over the things that were taking place. So let's read these things together. Psalm 74. O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed. This Mount Zion where you have dwelt, Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together." They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there anyone among us who knows how long. O oh God, How long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of the Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up many rivers. The day is yours, and the night is also yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, you would use your word, the cries of this brother, Lord, to open our hearts and our eyes, what you want us to hear this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So verse one, oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? An interesting way to begin the psalm, don't you think? Because doesn't it seem like sometimes in our life, the world is winning And not only is it winning, but it also seems like God at times isn't even paying attention. Like he's ignoring the things that are going on around us. As if he doesn't care. And not only this, don't we feel like there are at times that the things that we go through even feel like they are from the hand of God himself. Like we're feeling his wrath against us personally. That's how this psalm begins. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember, this is the Israelites. These are his people, God's people. And they're feeling this incredible, going through this incredible time. But let's be really careful with these thoughts. This is kind of a dangerous place to be. We have to remember that God is righteous. We should never forget this. And because of this, we know that judgment is coming. In fact, we know that when judgment comes, it starts in the household of God. And we even see some of this judgment today, but his full judgment has not yet come to pass. And I really pray that he calls his church home before that happens. Remember, the enemy is pulling the puppet strings. But God is still, in con- is still in control. He's still in charge. But the enemy does have a strong hold on the things of this world. It's something that should be comforting, Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Here's something to think about. Maybe a little example of this. Job chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came along them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, I'm going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Notice that God already knew why he was there. That there is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man. Who, one who fears God. And shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? Around his household? And around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands. And his possessions have increased in the land. But now... Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on this person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. First off, I'm fascinated how that happened. That's one of those questions I want to ask. God: How did Satan... Come up with the people that you called into your presence. I mean, obviously, the Lord allowed it. Satan didn't sneak into that place. Interesting. So Satan lies to God in this, and he says that Job will curse you to your face if you were to take away all the things that you blessed him with. We know that's not true. Satan tries to lie to God a lot. But God wasn't the one who took the things away, was he? God told Satan that you can do all these things, but you just can't kill them. So, see, even in that, all the things that Job had, all the things that he lost, everything was still in God's control, by God's direction. He gave Satan some parameters to work within. And there was no way Satan can overstep those boundaries, even if he wanted, and I'm sure he did. Remember in Luke 22:31, 31, where it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. Again, Satan wants to do these things, but God may or may not, depending on his will, allow these things. Satan still has to ask. The enemy's not in charge as much as we forget that. The enemy's not in charge. And that's why verse 1 starts off that way. They're desperate, tired of it, scared, afraid, nowhere to go. There's no way they can get themselves out of this situation. But God can. Think about how those people felt in bondage in Egypt. We read in Exodus chapter 2, 23 through 25. Now it happened in the process of the time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel. And God acknowledged them. So see... Even when we think God doesn't hear, God sees. He does hear. He knows. He may not do what we want him to do. He may not do what we think we want him to do. Certainly not in the way that we desire it. Because we see through a really small lens. We see the way things can change in a very small way. But we don't have the capacity to see like God can. And would we want to? I wouldn't. But the beauty here that in what's being done, roads are being paved, doors are opening, souls are being saved, lives are changing, our Heavenly Father is being glorified. So in a selfish way of looking at things, we need to repent where we try to tell God what we think we want because God's doing something greater. Verse 2 says, Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance which you have redeemed. This Mount Zion where you dwelt again, like we just read in Exodus, God will remember his covenant, his promise, And unlike us, God is not capable of breaking his promise. It's funny when I was thinking about this. It hasn't happened much here in Virginia, but when we lived in California, there's this thing that takes place that anybody who lived in California can attest to this, that when you ask somebody to have them come over for dinner to your place or meet you someplace out Oh, yeah, bro, we're going to be there for sure. Wouldn't miss it for the world. And they don't show up. It's the weirdest thing. It's like, why weren't you there? Oh, you know, something came up. But you wouldn't miss it for the world. And it happens all the time. It's like, do you not go anywhere? Because you're always... Anyway, it's a weird thing. It hasn't happened here in Virginia much, but it does happen there. So... And then we, you know, we, we lie about the most trivial things. We really do. You know, a, a child with a cookie in its hand, we can be staring at that child. Did you take another cookie? No. Like, I'm looking right at you. You got a cookie in your hand. We, we have the problem telling the truth. God doesn't. So we can believe when he says he will Remember. He doesn't lie. He doesn't forget. And so now in verse 3 and 4, we see the crux of the issue. The reason the great sorrow is mentioned. It says, lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. And Aesoph is essentially saying, God, run to our aid. Lift up your feet or pick up the feet, your feet, pick up the pace, run to our aid. Because the damage in the sanctuary is irreparable. It's impossible to repair, according to him. But isn't that our way when we look at things that are hard? My life is ruined everything we work towards is destroyed, it's gone. We can never climb out of this. And so a lot of people give up, even to the point where suicide is their way out. Because in their eyes, all hope is lost. And what is this damage that has been done? Well, it is the destruction of the temple. But scholars debate as to who was destroying the temple. Again, always a debate. Some say the Babylonians. Others claim it was King Nebuchadnezzar and the army of the Chaldeans with a sort of prophetic reference. Or whether or not it was Asaph or someone else, obviously Asaph plays a role into determining who and at what time these things took place. But suffice it to say, even with the debate, that the sanctuary was destroyed beyond repair, regardless of who did it. And if it happened to us, we too would be devastated. As I was reading over these Psalms and thinking and praying, I was reminded of all of our brothers and sisters around the world who have had their church buildings destroyed. And they've been destroyed at the hands of the people around them. Sometimes it's their own government. Sometimes it's just the people around them. And how devastated and scared and lost they must feel that now they don't have that place to go. But then I'm reminded of the stories that we hear, the body showing up, the church body, the body of Christ showing up to those building locations where the buildings no longer stand, and beginning to worship, beginning to pray. Beginning to teach and preach God's word. Because this place, this place here, as great as it is, and how, what a blessing it is to be able to come here and hear God's word and praise and worship and spend time with the Lord, that's not who God is. He's just provided this place. And I pray that if this building was taken from us, was destroyed, that we wouldn't stop gathering as the body to worship. Because our faith isn't built on whether or not we have this building in front of us. Plenty of our brothers and sisters meet together in homes or outside in various locations to worship and quote-unquote hold church. But I think we're a little spoiled. It makes me think about Various people I've spoken to over the years, when inviting them to church, and I'm sure you've had the same experience, many people will first ask when you say, hey, why don't you check our church out? First, by verse teaching? Many people will say, where is it? Which is, for logistic reasons, that's a fine question. Except what if we said, well, our church building was burned down by this hate group, so we're meeting in the woods behind the dump. I wonder if they would come then, but that didn't happen. But the next question normally to follow is, well, how many people attend your church? What does that have to do with anything? Why does it matter how many people come to our church? We get to go to church. It doesn't matter if there's two or if there's 2,000. The numbers don't matter. But this is how we here in the States, in the United States, think about church. So it, it was hard for them to see these things take place and to feel that maybe they didn't have God's presence with them. But that doesn't mean that he's not there. And so we see the destruction and feel Helpless. As they did, we cry out to God. And they even so far as to say, hurry (laughs) to their aid. The enemy has destroyed your house, and you're trying to make it something of their own by putting up their own banners. But this happens today. Verse 5 through 9 really start looking at what exactly the enemy is doing to destroy these things. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees, And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling places of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who know how long. Matthew Henry said, When the desolations of the sanctuary have continued long, we are tempted to think they will be perpetual, but it is just a temptation. For God will avenge his own elect, will avenge them speedily, though he bear long with their oppressors and persecutors. He allows the things to take place. We would say that he tarries, he bears long with them. You know, we spoke earlier about these things going on our way and not turning out for our results as fast as we would like them. And while it's true that God will absolutely have his day to avenge, it does seem like the oppression, the persecutions, the things that are going on around the world, the destruction, it really does seem when you turn on the news that it's dragging on and on. But God has his own reasons for all that he does all that he allows. And we should never try to attempt to put our own logic to this because we know that God desires that none should perish. Second Peter 3, 9 reminds us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not only that any should perish, but that all should come to no repentance aren't you glad god is patient he's patient with us now he was patient with us before salvation and we still mess up and he's still patient with us today were we deserving of this patience were we deserving of his grace did our salvation come about at the discomfort of others probably Many of us probably. So why should we be any different? What if out of these things, the discomfort that we feel, what if out of these things, many come to know Christ as savior? Wouldn't it be worth it then? So what if we're put through the wringer for a little bit? Isn't that life saved worth all that trouble? worth the temporary because it is temporary discomfort that we feel folks it is temporary it's called being a light and a witness and we're called to do that remember in john 16:33, jesus tells the disciples these things i have spoken to you that in me you have peace in the world you will have tribulation but be good cheer i have overcome the world so in in christ we have peace But in the world we have tribulation verses 10 and 11 is nothing short of a really truly an honest prayer oh God how long will the adversary reproach will the enemy blaspheme your name forever why do you withdraw your hand even your right hand take it out of your bosom and destroy them it is an honest prayer but it's misguided this is what I mean This is probably something that we've prayed ourselves many times. Just destroy the ones that are causing these things. Just make the pain stop. End my pain by ending their life, is really what we're saying. But what if he did? What if he did? What if he did that in the past when we were the ones causing other people pain? What if he answered that prayer then? If he did, we wouldn't be here today. So be careful with this type of a thought. And we see this quite a bit in Psalms. We see David crying out. There was time and a place for these things. So we have a risen savior that is patient and long-suffering, that his desire is that none should perish. So we're going to be at a little discomfort. Sometimes it's excruciating pain. But if out of that souls are saved, then his patience pays off, even at our cost, to die is gain. So I encourage you to never pray that prayer. Because through Christ and his glory, we have his strength to endure. We have his courage to continue, his peace to have the countenance that demonstrates God's love and compassion to all those that hate around us. Romans 12, 9 tells us, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's not for us to decide the fate of others. Nor it is our decision to repay others for their wrongdoing against us. Romans 12:18 reminds us, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. It is dependent on us. Do our actions and reactions not lie in our own capacity to control them and to show peace to those that demonstrate hate towards us? Of course they do. It is within our capacity. I was... I was praying I wouldn't tear up But I was watching this program a while back, and there was a man who was on trial for a murder of this other man. And he had been found guilty. But at the sentencing hearing, the judge allowed for an opportunity to have the victim's family say a couple of things. And it was was hard to watch. Most of the family had to kind of pre-write, and then read from the things that they had written. And when they did so, most of them actually didn't even face the man, but faced the judge and just said what they said and then sat down. It's hard when you see that kind of hatred take place, especially with a family member, right? I worked with a guy who... For his, it was his life dream. He wanted to be a police officer. And so he quit work, joined the academy, did really well, was out with another officer, a more experienced officer, doing during some training period, kind of learning the ropes of the, the patrol part of it. And he was doing great, pulling people over, writing tickets. He was doing great until he... Had to respond to his first homicide. And then three weeks later, he was back at work. Because it was too much. It got too real. But this trial that was taking place, the mother of the victim stood. And the mother of the victim was the only person to do this, stood and faced the man that had committed, and it was bad. It was really bad. And the words, her first words to him was, I forgive you. Can you imagine that? This atrocity in your family has taken place. You're looking at the person who did it. And your first words are, I forgive you. She continued with, You are not my enemy. She said, as much as God has loved me, sending his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for my sins, she said he loves you just as much and sent his son to die for you. She told him it's my prayer that while incarcerated, You give over the things of this world that got you here in this place and accept Christ as your Savior. And she sat down. What incredible courage. But that is what it means to be a light and a witness. It's hard to even say that. We should never wish ill will on our adversaries. Jesus tells us Part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five forty three through forty eight, you have heard that it was said, "You shall lose your neighbor and hate your." Sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Remember, the visions is his, not ours. But God's people couldn't comprehend why God would be absent from this atrocity taking place. Why he would be silent. In their eyes, God had chosen to not act on their behalf. And even at times, silence the prophets. And they're asking him to act, to stand up. So when God doesn't, this could present in their eyes a couple of issues. It could mean that Israel is the object or the focus of God's wrath because of the idolatry and the unfaithful behavior that they were in. And that's a scary realization to have. It may also mean that the invading army, Babylon if it was, had been given strength and the ability to defeat the nation, and that ability was given by God. It likely could be the Babylonian army, verse 6 um, when talking about the destruction, axes and hammers in Jeremiah, it matches Jeremiah's description of the Babylonian army in Jeremiah 48, 22, and 23. It speaks of these types of devices. It also means that God will both judge and deliver Israel. Because God will judge, but he still hasn't forgot his promise. And it's interesting here the next verses. Verse 12 through 17, it starts with four. For God is the king from of old. Some say verse 12 is kind of like the central verse because at this point, Asaph is turning from his eyes, being focused on the destruction to his faith in God. The psalmist here is saying that God can do all of these destructions to the enemy because he is all of these things. You broke the heads of the Leviathan. You did this. The day is yours. Asaph's faith in God is growing. Because every one of these things that is listed here is impossible for us. As they saying, look at all these things you've done. Destroying the enemy would be easy. There's something about these verses right here, though, that trouble me a little bit, not the verses themselves. Maybe it's the condition of the heart of the people, possibly. And I'm not saying that through these cries, through what they're saying, that there isn't repentance. But maybe not in the way that we're used to seeing it. We'll say that. See, all the folks here are crying out because of the destruction they see. But they knew the law they heard it being taught all the time. They understood the part they play in it. They were familiar with the sacrifices and all that they represented. And more than that, they heard the prophets. All of this time, they heard the prophets saying these things would happen, that they would be destroyed. They heard the prophets foretold, they knew that was shared from the promise from God because the prophets always start with thus saith the Lord. They knew this was from God. But all of these people chose to ignore that. They chose to stay busy about their business. Some told the prophets to shut up. Others wanted them dead. Some said, oh, I don't believe in this stuff. Get away from me. This junk doesn't apply to me. Is so that like anybody that we talk to? You sure it doesn't apply to you? Do you believe now? It's like we were discussing this, this month during our men's Bible study. You know, the people in the book of Revelation, they're going about doing their, their best to silence God and his word. But when the judgment starts, if they were to have seen the written word, they would be like, oh, this is us, and this is happening now. This is the same thing. Had they understood the prophets and believed the prophets, they would have understood this is us, this is now. And also, of course, there's always a remnant. But certainly most of the people were wicked in all they did. And the people as a whole, they hear from the prophets about the destruction and again, they chose to do something else. But when it comes, when that destruction comes, they're crying out to God, remember your promises. What I don't hear, and again, maybe it's in how they say it, but where's the repentance? Where's their, their accountability in all this? Why do not we read about them crying out. We recently went through a book of psalm where David was repentant. The entire psalm is him crying out to the Lord in repentance. We see here them asking for God's help because they believe that he can do these things. But where's the repentance? Instead, remember your promises. But this is us Today it really describes us to a T. No true repentance to God, but we tell God, remember your promises. We tell God, if you do these things, then I'll be good. Because this is our mindset. But we're in no position to tell God anything. You know, we hear, take heed, but instead we take another turn. We hear, repent of your sins, But instead, we repeat our sins. We hear today is a day of salvation, but we say there's always tomorrow. And when when things get rough, it's God's fault. How can you let this happen? Remember your promise. God, you can do this, you did that, you did all these things. But if God was so awesome and so strong, made everything, is everything, why didn't they have the reverence then for him before? Why didn't they give God the honor and the glory this entire time? Why don't we? What if only when these things get bad, that's when we look to God and his power? Because we want him to fix these things? The things that went wrong in our disobedience? And we talked about Job earlier and how even in those rough times, God is still in control, and he is. He even, he even is now. Because the enemy can't do anything he isn't allowed to do. But Job didn't have anything to do specifically with what took place for him. We read why Job went through what he did. But in this case, destruction came because the children of God had turned their hard hearts away from God to false idols. So why are the people not crying to these false idols now suddenly all of a sudden these false idols are no longer worthy of the praise and the attention goes back to God looking for him to hurry and put an end to these things he told us this would happen if we didn't turn from those things and it's funny because when God follows through, maybe not funny when God follows through on his promise and he always does Now we're asking God for help? Still not repenting, but just telling him that he's capable to stop it. It's just an interesting picture that we see here. But God is still saying the same thing today. Turn from your idol worship, turn from your sin, turn from whatever it is that you place your trust and faith in. We have Jesus Christ who died on a Roman cross for our sins. He overcame sin and death and rose again to glory and now is at the right hand of the Father. I'm going to pause here. If you are here or watching online and have never asked Christ to be your Lord and Savior, don't hesitate any longer. Today is the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. If you've never accepted Christ as your savior, what is preventing you from doing so right now? If there's anybody here, raise your hand. We'll pray with you. If there's anybody online, send a message to the sound guys. We wanna know, we wanna talk with you. If you think about these things, you wanna talk afterwards, as always we'll have people here who wanna pray with you. Today is a day of salvation. Moving on to verses 18 and 19. Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that the foolish people have blasphemed your name. See, these verses really are reminiscent of the initial way the psalm started by pointing out how the enemy has reviled the name of God, how Israel are God's special people, and the promise, this covenant of Abraham. They're reiterating the severity of the things taking place and how God is the only one who can stop them. This verse 19 reference of the turtle dove It's a sacrificial animal under the law. There's also a reference to the turtle dove being a migratory bird as one never actually having a home. But now it's being used as a symbol for the chosen people. Now the word dove is a symbol for all sorts of things. Really too many to mention here. I, I encourage you do some research here on the dove. It's wonderful. We don't have time to do it tonight. Verse 20 and 21 say, Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Again, going back to this covenant, they really don't want God to forget his covenant. And they say, For the dark places of the earth are full of haunts and cruelty. What does this mean? I'll admit that this is a hard verse to fully understand in that we're not really sure about this place. Does it mean the place of exile of God's people? Does it mean their own land that's being destroyed and the violence that's taking place? Is it a reference to hell like some believe? Is it a little bit of everything? I personally lean more towards it being a reference to the land of God's people being that they're being exiled to because they're being taken away from their places of worship, away from God's temple, his sanctuary. It's sad though, don't you think, that it takes the destructions of these things for the people to recognize that the alternative is darkness and it forces the separation from the things that you attribute to God. Even if they didn't care before, They at least had a choice. Now, they're being forced. You know, as we said before, when we think about our places of worship, think about the persecuted brothers and sisters. Even when our Bibles are destroyed, the body is imprisoned or forced to live in exile. God, our Heavenly Father, His Word, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are still present and more powerful than all the strength the enemy can muster. Man, as much as they try, can never silence God. Let the poor and the needy praise your name. The poor and the needy in this context are a reference to the suffering people of Israel, including the faithful remnant. In the closing verses, 22 through 23, arise, O God, plead your own cause, Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. As the psalm ends, it ends with this final plea for the Lord. God asking, or asking God for four final things. First thing is is arise. Arise, O God. Get up. No longer ignore the cries of your people. Plead. Lead your own cause. God doesn't need our help. They ask him to remember. Remember the foolish man and how his reproach is against you. Do not forget. Don't forget the voice of your enemies. God's enemies. Those who hurt us for our faith. Those who oppose us in this manner. Think about it. Actually oppose God. Their anger is directed at us but their anger is against God. Just like Paul on his way to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's act was against God's people, but in all actuality, it was against God. God, please remember, please act, so the world may know is what they're saying. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 38 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel. I'm sorry, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy namesake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. When I am hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. God will glorify and will be glorified in all he does. Let's close. You know I, I really do love the book of Psalms. We get to see the sight of God's people that is reflective of ourselves, We get a chance to read these songs and participate in worshiping God as we walk through our own issues. Some of these things were caused by our own hands and other things we face are caused by other people. But it's wonderful that in all of these things, God hears and answers prayers. His mercy is daily and his grace is our sufficiency. Again, as we normally do, there'll be people here if you want to pray If you need prayer for healing, you want anointing with oil, we can do that as well. Just meet us in the corner. Let's close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. This quote is in reference to the book of Psalms. The man of sorrow is now anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Returned in triumph from the overthrow of all of his foes, he offers his own rapturous te duum, a praise of the Trinity, that's what that means. Te duum. Or praise of the Trinity in the temple above and joys in the power of the Lord. Herein let every subject of King Jesus imitate the King. Let us lean upon Jehovah's strength. Let us joy in it by unstaggering faith. Let us exalt in our thankful songs. Jesus not only has thus rejoiced, but he shall also do so as he sees. The power of divine grace bringing out from their sinful hiding places the purchase of his soul's travail. We also shall rejoice more and more as we learn by experience more and more fully the strength of the arm of our covenant God. Our weakness unstrings our harps, but his strength tunes them anew. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for this opportunity that we get to be here, to hear and to read your word together. We pray, Lord, as we leave this place, that we meditate on the things that we heard. Lord, we look to you and ask you, Lord, what is it that you would have us do instead of us trying to tell you what we're going to do? Lord, we pray that you would... Just do a new work in each of us today, Lord. And as we leave this place, Lord, we're calmed in our spirit because we know that you are with us. Lord, forgive us where we have fallen short in many areas of our lives. And Lord, forgive me in any way if I have misinterpreted something. Lord, show me if, any, if anything that I have said, Lord, that i be able to share my mistake with your body. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for the courage you give us. And we thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.